at every turn. And last week, as we looked at Jesus really bringing things to a flashpoint as he decides to set free a woman who was disabled for 18 years, he does it in the middle of a synagogue where you think there'd be a good bit of praise to God, but because he does it on a Sabbath day, it is instead met with resistance and ridicule and, and um, rejection. Uh, so much so that Jesus is a marked man. And now as he continues to bring his disciples along, preparing them for the great task of evangelizing the world itself, nothing less than that, he takes them aside and has some additional teaching. And we're going to pick up on that. In a very short passage this morning, we're going to pray together. We'll look at this passage and be amazed at how different Jesus's kingdom is than the world thought, but I think even more than we think even today. So pray with me. Dear God, thanks that we can come together this morning. Thanks for the warmth that we have inside right now. And as we look at this passage, God, I pray that we don't shrink back at all from what it is to which Jesus calls us, but instead that we embrace fully his kingdom, not trying to make it into an image of our own making that is more, let's say, palatable to the world around us, but that we would trust in Jesus to do things his way and to see the great effect of doing so. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So read with me in Luke 13, verse 18. And when I say read with me, I mean for you to do it silently as, as I read it. That, because there's like seven different translations out there. It doesn't work like it used to in the old days. Where it would all be just like, ah, rah, ah, rah, ah, you know, as you're reading. That was my impression of all of you reading different translations at one time, in case you didn't. I should probably save my voice. Okay, verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and it became a tree and the birds perched in its branches like a bird on a perch again he asked what shall I compare the kingdom of God to it is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough and so on the surface of these two parables you think I get it the kingdom is small but before long, it's huge. The mustard seed, tiny little seed. But when it grows up, it's this big, massive plant that birds can even perch in and people have shade underneath it. Wow, I get it. Small beginnings, great expansion. And same thing with a little bit of yeast. It's only a tiny bit of yeast that has to go into 60 pounds. That's enough to feed 150 people, the amount that's uh, being described here. So just a little bit of yeast somehow is able to affect or leaven more literally, according to this passage, is able to work its way through this massive amount, even though it's a little bit, it's that pervasive. But it's not just about the idea of being pervasive that we're looking at here. It's more than that. And it is true that the kingdom of God starts small and significant in the corner of some backwater area of Palestine in the great mighty Roman Empire. And before too long, it is the dominant faith of the entire 
Roman Empire. And did that happen? Yes, it did. Is that what this parable is all about? Only partially. Because if that's all that we look at it, then we're going to miss the other really key ingredient to this parable. And today, we think of maybe mustard as kind of a good thing. Like, I like mustard. Some people in my family don't. Uh, I tend to enjoy it. You know, big mustard plant, I don't know what that is, but it sounds nice. Small, grows big. You know, it's like, you know, maybe the, the sage that you might have in your garden or some other uh, herb that you might want to have in your garden. Great, good stuff, bring it on. And likewise, when you think of a bit of yeast, well, wouldn't you rather have a big, fluffy, you know, roll than just a flat pizza, flat piece of matzah? Right? I mean, I, I think I, I prefer, you know, the kind of the big fluffy rolls instead. And that's what yeast is able to be able to give to us. Um, but here's the danger. We're looking at all of that through our lens here and now. And we're reading back into the Bible what it is that we value now. We've got to always, always give our best to get back into the seat of those that were sitting at Jesus' feet and hear everything that we hear in the Bible through their ears. And as we do so, this parable is actually going to unfold in ways that are that is quite surprising. So as we begin, let's look at my first point. Oops, I'm going to probably go to... The first point is, the kingdom may be small... But at least, at least it's revolting. And by revolting, I mean repulsive in that sense. Kind of in the same sense as uh, Mel Brooks said in that great 80s drama, History of the World Part 1. It is said that the peasants are revolting. You're telling me. They stink on ice. He says that as he's holding a shotgun. And right after that, he yells, Pull! And, and he's actually on a skeet range, but instead of skeet, it's, it's one of the peasants that go flying through the air that he kills. So it was the 80s, so it was a different time. But but here's the, here's the reason that the kingdom of God is going to be considered repulsive or revolting. Noxious, like a terrible weed that suddenly begins... To permeate your great cultivated garden that you love. Because to the Jew, when they thought of this small thing that would suddenly grow and expand and be glorious, a plant of some sort like Jesus is talking of here, it would not have been the mustard seed. As a matter of fact, there was a very clear picture in their minds of what Jesus should have said at this point. And it's taken from the book of Ezekiel. I'll read it to you. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot, small little sprig, from the very top of a cedar. Not a mustard seed, but a cedar. This is a cedar tree. This is the cedar of Lebanon. It is the centerpiece of this cultivated garden that you see here. It is majestic, it is grand, it is mighty. It is the symbol of glory. And to a Jew, 
The idea that the sprig at the top would represent David and his great dynasty. And that when the kingdom comes again, it would come in a way that would restore the grandeur that was Israel under King David. Let me keep reading here. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. Do you hear the connection? They wouldn't have missed it then and there. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. That's Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. This was clearly in the minds of everyone in the midst of the messianic fever that was gripping Israel in the first century. And for Jesus, instead to talk about a mighty cedar... And instead to describe the kingdom's coming. And again, they're, they're thinking, yes, glory, grandeur, splendid, cedar, strength, beauty. And he says, oh, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like that stinking, disgustous, noxious weed that takes over the mess that you try to cultivate and ruins everything. Think of some weed that takes over a garden or your lawn and you're like, ah, I can't believe this stupid thing is back. You know, year after year, here it comes. And as much as you detest it, for me, it's nutsage in my yard. Uh, In your yard, it may be crabgrass or whatever else it might be. But that's kind of the idea that Jesus is saying here is the kingdom of God. It's like, oh, how shall I compare it? What will I say? What will I use? It's like that nasty crabgrass. It just starts in the corner of the yard and you look at it with distaste. And before you know it, it's taken over the whole thing. And here we come. But to miss that point is to miss the essence of who we are in the kingdom of God. There's nothing special about us, as Paul will later say, or any of you of grand birth, any of you got something special going on? No, no, indeed. And from this small despised movement in the corner of Palestine comes the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. Christianity was called religio prava, which meant an illegal, depraved religion. And it was despised. Why was it despised? Well, because Rome thought that they could best keep everybody happy under this vast administration of an entire empire by letting everybody be okay with their own gods and their own religion. So if you want to worship your way, you go for it. You want to worship your way, you go for it. We're not going to make a big case out of this anyway. A lot of it is just superstition, I'm sure, to the administration and the emperor's mind. So you go ahead and do what you want to do. Isn't that nice? Isn't that cute? The way that they have their incense, the way that they have their ceremonies. And by the way, opiate of the masses, let them have it. And we'll, we'll get them going here um, with, with the things that matter most. That was kind of the party line of Rome. And Christianity 
thumbed its nose at that idea. Because while all other religions were okay with all other religions, Christianity was not. Because it said clearly, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. Repeatedly, Jesus is exclusive. And in an empire that was promoting tolerance, sound familiar to today, that was anathema. That was repulsive. That was a contaminant that they needed to be able to uh, strike on out. And yet, even though it was illegal, even though it was marked as depraved, it didn't have much going for it. This small little kingdom in the, in the early church. And at the end of the first century, it still was just resigned to a small little corner of the Roman Empire. But by the end of the 200s, it had spread everywhere. Into every corner of Roman society. And yet, the church had no buildings. The very first building that the church had was just a makeshift house that got converted and was still tiny. Could fit maybe just, you know, maybe 30 people or so. And that wasn't until the year 231 AD, 200 years after Christ. For 200 years, no buildings. There was no mass media. No social status among its members. There's not one star that is converted in the early church after Paul. Until Constantine, the emperor, and that is already after Christianity has already made its spread. The only thing that they had on a wide-scale basis was persecution. And in two murderous campaigns, those persecutions were designed to completely wipe out this repulsive movement. Not only was it hated by general society, but by the Jews that were listening to Jesus in this parable, it was most hated of all. And the one last thing that many of the traditions could try to point to was that they were ancient. But because the Jews completely distanced themselves from Christianity in Rome, Christianity couldn't even point to the legacy and the fulfillment of the Jewish religion either. Because the Jews were voicing objections against that very idea. All they had was faith. They had fellowship with one another. And they had new lives. They lived in urban settings for the most part during those first 200 years. And in urban settings in the Roman Empire, there are not many secrets that you can keep. Life was different and you were on top of one another. That, however, led to their spread. Because while everyone else was fine to let the poor suffer and the sick die, the Christians did not. Despite infectious diseases, despite the travails of helping others, they did so. They took in the children left to exposure. They took in the old left to exposure. They loved not only their own, but they loved those that persecuted them. They were fair in their business dealings, but most of all, they had different lives that were beyond reproach. They were holy. They were pure. And it was unmistakable. And that didn't always appeal, but at some level, because God works through our consciences, the Holy Spirit continued to work 
And as they saw what it was that the Holy Spirit was convicting them towards, they saw it in the Christians. And the Holy Spirit was able to work through those Christians. And over time, that most hated of all movements began grand, where all the birds of the air could perch in its branches. It provided shade and shelter and protection for all those who would come under and surrender to the, the work of Jesus Christ. And so, this mustard plant does grow, grow remarkably. We've got to trust that for ourselves too. Is that even, even in our own recent history, right here in Hampton Roads, it was, it was just in the 90s that we had a fellowship of any sort. But that fellowship was really just people who ended up getting transferred here because of military or a couple other uh, situations. And voila, we had a minivan of people. Amen. But because they were so determined to hold fast to both life and doctrine, they traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. from here, not from here, but from Virginia Beach, every week. Now, you might have had a hassle getting to church this morning. But Howard Henry... Who was part of that crew? He drove three and a half hours each way uphill. That's right. He was barefoot in that minivan. And that little group of a minivan would now fit in something like 120 minivans today. And that's without the kids. For the kids, we would need another 40 minivans to be able to hold them in our, in our fellowship. So from one minivan to 150 minivans, that's what's happened since Howard first got transferred over to this little part of the world to where we are now. It's true. It's all true. Jesus's divine will is that his kingdom will inexorably spread and expand and continue to make the inroads, even though at the time it just feels like, ah, nobody responds. Everybody wants to just have some sort of happy path towards Christianity. Everybody wants compromise. We can get down on that, but don't forget what God has done and what He's continuing to do. Yes, people would prefer the compromise. Yes, as Paul promises, people will gather around them a bunch of preachers to preach what their itching ears want to hear. That's not Jesus' way. It's an easy way to pretend like you're growing, but it's not Jesus' way. Let me look on. So, while the kingdom may be small, at least it's revolting, the good news is, let's see if this is working. At least its revulsion spreads fast. And this revulsion is due, I believe, even today, to the fact that we deal with the full gospel. We're not here just trying to have a self-improvement approach to life, but one that recognizes that if we're really going to be made new by Jesus... We've got to deal with something called sin. And that's not a 
a very popular idea. Before I was a Christian, I was the director of marketing for Coca-Cola in the Northeast for uh, immediate consumption of soft drinks, so cold drinks. And, and as such, I, I learned a lot about marketing strategies and how to research different demographics, values, attitudes, lifestyles, motivations, needs, and wants. And as a result, to be able to target markets and order best to position our product and shape our product to meet the needs of the consumers that we wanted to be able to capture. Unfortunately, that's what many churches do today. Is that they tailor their product, sadly to call it that, to the needs of the consumers that they want to reach. And rather than demand discipleship of Jesus Christ, making Him Lord, deal with sin, really repent, be completely made new through reconciliation by the blood of Christ, and then to actually live in community selflessly continuing this very same message, you get instead, as a result of lots and lots of research, messages that look more like four easy steps towards a stronger family. Come this week and see. The five secrets of a solid marriage. The seven keys to financial freedom that are yours through the Bible. The five steps to have more attractive kids that get better grades. Maybe they don't do that one. But you've probably heard that approach over and over again. It's it's called the Madison Avenue approach. Madison Avenue is the road in New York City where all the advertising firms are. It's, it's where this research is conducted. And there's a big difference between the narrow way and Madison Avenue. Jesus promotes nothing less than a narrow way. And his message is never, here's five easy steps for you to have a more fulfilling life. If we even take a look at some of the passages that surround this passage... Well, here's some of the things that Jesus will say in the next couple paragraphs or in the few paragraphs that preceded this very passage. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Moments earlier, from that passage, remember the very next passage, a man runs up to Jesus and says, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Well, where did he get that idea? From Jesus, who said, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on it, but narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Preaching anything else? is simply tailoring and pandering to consumers. Earlier Jesus said, as we just studied, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? I didn't. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided each other, three against two, two against three. 
Earlier to this crowd, he says, you know a lot about the Bible, but check this out. The servant who knows the master's will and doesn't get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. And to the same crowd, he says to them, beware, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's a good way to win friends and influence people. But Jesus' message is uncompromising. And it's only through that steel in the spine, firm commitment to gospel truth, by which any one of us were able, ever able to be delivered completely as we've been delivered. If we went after a compromise of Jesus' message, well, then we would have cashed it all in. I have freedom now. I have true freedom. I've been unshackled from sins that had beseeched me for 30 years almost. And those are gone. They really are. Praise God. But it wasn't going to happen because of five easy steps or seven secrets or seven keys to something or other. It was only going to happen by allowing the gospel to deal thoroughly with my life with my sin, with my pride, with my preconceptions of what Christianity should be, and get humbled out finally by the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, and through people, praise God, that also had steel in their spine. And were able to bring me the gospel. You're going to be tempted over and over again to bend, to compromise, to position the gospel in a way that you think will be more flattering, a more flattering light. You're selling everything out if you do. We've got to deal with what Jesus deals with. Otherwise, we become humanistic. And it's no longer the Holy Spirit that brings about this transformation. It becomes our wisdom, our enlightenment, our positive attitude that brings about this transformation. Which one are you going to want? But which one's going to matter on the day when Jesus returns. So anyway, besides this mustard weed that Jesus speaks of, and it's probably a good way to think of it, it's not really a mustard tree or mustard plant, it's a mustard weed. But besides this mustard weed that is totally messing up your garden, polluting it, contaminating it, he then goes on and says, all right, now the yeast. Let's look at that. And this woman hides it into the dough, it's an interesting phrase. It's not a normal phrase that you would use for any sort of a, a, a cooking idea. And she hides it and mixes it in until it works its way all the way through the dough. So what does the Bible think about yeast? I know I like yeast. In my bread, that is. I don't like it on my toes. If that disgusts you, I was going for that, really, so that you would have the repulsion that Jesus was going for here. I don't have any of my toes right now, just as a disclaimer, just to make that clear. But instead, yeast was what we would really call leaven. Uh, leaven and yeast are not exactly the same thing. But what leaven was, was yesterday's dough. And when you're done baking, you baked every day. You only had bread for that day. There was no refrigeration. So after baking that day's bread, sometimes you would set aside a little bit of dough. And 
In doing so, it would then have the ferment, because there's no refrigeration, so the fermentation process would take over. Anything that had any sort of sugars in it is, is going to ferment without, without refrigeration. That's why there is no such thing as grape juice in the first century. It was, it was always fermented at some point in time. And, and likewise, this little bit of dough, fermentation would continue, and the carbon dioxide would make the bread rise, and the alcohol would make the bread turn sour. And so you'd have, in a sense, like sourdough bread when you, in the first century when you would mix it. Now, sourdough bread, you might, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I like sourdough bread. Yes, you do, but you like it in a very specific recipe today. Got to stop thinking about today. In the first century, a, a sour bread did not taste as, as good as matzah. Matzah actually, it, at its root, the word actually has the idea of being sweet and better tasting. And in the first century, you would prefer this to this. And if you're sitting in this audience with Jesus, and you're hearing that the kingdom of God is going to be like this, you're thinking, hmm, not only does that not taste quite as good, but I think the Bible says a thing or two about leaven. And everything that it says about leaven is negative. For example... What I just read earlier, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees. It's their hypocrisy. Later on, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. In Galatians, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come from one who calls you. A little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. Now, Jesus in this parable is not trying to say that the kingdom of God is like the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's not trying to say that even though he equates it at other times. In a general sense, keep this in mind, please. In a general sense, what he's saying is your negative view of leaven is going to be like the Jews' view and the general population's view of our kingdom. And yes, it's going to be as though it's imperceptible, hidden inside these big 60 pounds of dough. But it's going to spread. But when it does, you're going to know it. Anybody ever see the little rascals clip when they're trying to make the bread and it's like, wee, wah, wee, wah. No, you have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> They're trying to ice the cake and it, and it keeps kind of like busting up. Well, that was an overleavened cake that he was trying to make there. And for a Jew listening to Jesus, he would be reinforced. The two parables are the same parable. And it would just be reinforced again that, wow, if I'm going to be with this Jesus guy, I'm signing up to be generally despised by those around me. Not only the Jews, but the Roman Empire in general. What did you sign up for? Did you sign up because you wanted to be liked? Sign up because you wanted to kind of have a solid family with those seven keys? Or did you sign up because of Jesus? Knowing that your Jesus is alive and that he's guiding you today and preparing you for his return. 
And if that's what you signed up for, well, then you will be Jesus through his message to those that need to hear you. And if you are, well, then they're going to hate you just as they hated him. He promises. That's the path of discipleship. As a matter of fact, Paul promises everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be what? Persecuted. Exactly. This is not pat on the back. Yay, look at that. You've really come around. Finally, you got some Jesus in your life. If your brand of Christianity only is palatable to the culture around you, well, you probably have designed that version yourself at some level and decided to pick and choose rather than surrender over completely to the gospel message. And your brand of Christianity, if it's of your own making, is absolutely impotent, powerless to be able to bring about real deliverance and real spread throughout the world. But if you decide to surrender completely, bear all the indignation that comes from being disliked and repulsed and rejected, well then guess what? You're then working in alignment with the message of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is behind what it is that you're bringing. And what you're bringing is going to have an effect. Yes, there'll be rejection over and over again, but small, little seeds are taking root. It's working its way in more ways than you can imagine. Whatever you do, don't compromise. Trust in alignment with the words of Christ. Trust in that. You know, I, I love the fact that we meet in some elementary school auditorium. We're, you know, kind of just the ragtag group. Who knew? But, but praise God that we hold to the standards of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people ask me, hey, how come, you know, you lead the Hampton Roads Church. How come you don't want to be called like, you know, Pastor Anton? And there's nothing wrong necessarily with that phrase. Pastor just means shepherd. It's the Latin, Latin version of, of, of shepherd. But, you know, the main reason that I don't think I'd ever want that is because most people who go after being called Pastor Anton or Pastor whatever, they do it because they're looking for respectability. I don't want that. I want to be like Paul, who says we're the scum of the earth at the back of the procession. I, I'd rather be known as that, that weird guy over there than, oh, yeah, yeah let's, go, let's go visit Pastor Anton. Maybe he has a good word for us today. I hope not. I hope I just have a radical word to be able to make the difference. But not just me, every one of us. That that's who we are. That we're that kind of leaven bubbling up. Yeah, they may not like it, but it's coming. We're that weed that has taken root. Oh, look, here they are. Oh, no, they've arrived here as well. What in the world? Yes, it is. And you may not like it at first, but in the end, it's the only place with shade. The only place with shelter. The only place with real comfort. We've got to trust in that. It's going to continue to happen. It's going to continue to expand. Jesus is behind it. Jesus is behind you. And as a, a final note for today, choose the narrow road over Madison Avenue. Don't in any way try to pretty up the message of Jesus Christ. It doesn't need it. 
He doesn't need it. The world, whether they know it or not, they need the radical edge that is at first repulsive in the message of the gospel. They need to be shaken up. They need to be disrupted just as you needed to be and I needed to be. I could have kidded myself a hundred times over with some anemic version of the gospel of Jesus. But the full gospel demands that we look at our sins, demands that we get repentance, that we get faith, that we get deliverance. Have a talk with a friend today and let him know, not today, have a talk with a friend this week rather, and let him know, let him know the narrowness, the intensity, the radical edge of Jesus Christ and trust that through that, that small seed, that small batch is working its way through and watch what Jesus will do through you. In Jesus name, let's do it. Amen.